five years. This time of year, I always get a little sentimental and think about just how much God has done. It's, it, always just, it always just blows me away. Well, today we're going to be looking at a text. If you want to open up to Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 38. I'm not going to quite read it through in the beginning uh, as we normally do. I'm going to, instead, I'm going to read it as we go. Uh, so the words will be on your screen. But if you want to turn to that, we're going to be looking at Mark uh, 8, starting in verse 27. And this is a text that has probably changed the way or shaped the way I think about church culture more than any other. Uh, it's it's helped help me in this game-changing way, help me understand how the church can be relevant and engaging in the culture. Now, that's not to say these things are the end-all, be-all of church, but they are important. It really matters because well, conceptually speaking, the American church hasn't done all that great of a job when it comes to engaging with, with the culture. In fact, the data tell us that the, the, the church, a lot of people are leaving the church right now. Uh, more people than ever before are wanting nothing to do with the church, and it probably doesn't surprise anybody here that the leading place that that's happening and trending is, is here in the Bay Area. Uh, the reasons people give for leaving the church or wanting nothing to do with the church are hypocrisy in the church, self-righteousness in the church, and judgmentalism in the church. Which really is quite tragic because these are three things that Jesus himself just strongly opposed all throughout his teachings and ministry. I was reading a book a while back called The Tangible Kingdom written by Hugh Halter. And he's talking about one of the reasons he sees this issue in the American church and people are leaving it and wanting less to do with it has to do with this posture that's in the church, embedded within the American church that is driving people away for the wrong reasons. And he says that the, the posture, really the sequence that you see in the American church that's happening is this idea of first you have to behave, he said. That is, you have to fit in, subscribe to the norms, figure them out, and then, then get your act together accordingly. After behaving, you, you have, then you can believe, you have to adopt the doctrine of the church, figure out what the special things there are at that given church and, and believe those. And then, and then after behave, believe, then you can belong, then you're in. Congratulations, you can learn the secret handshake, he quips. But the author, author makes the point that uh, not only is this not right, this posture within a, within a church, it's unbiblical. That needs to be flipped on its, on its head. And one of the, uh, as I was reading that text, thinking, uh, excuse me, that book, thinking about these things, I was actually also reading through the book of Mark at the same time, and I came across the text that we're going to be looking at today, chapter 8, verses 27 and beyond, that really shows Jesus modeling a different way to go about it, a different posture that I think is important for us to consider here in the church. And we love this idea so much, we made a shirt back in the day about it. It's this idea of, no, not behave, believe, belong. It's belong, believe, become. Belong, believe, become. I don't know if you can see it in the back. Um, but we see that that's what Jesus is doing here in this text. Belong, believe, become. With his main followers, his disciples. So we're going to consider today why that's, or how he went about doing that and why that's important for us as a church and also as individuals wherever we are on our spiritual journey. Belong, believe, become. All right, so first we're going to see how Jesus created this environment of belonging. Okay, so let's pick up in our Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, what we need to understand is this is an absolutely monumental occasion. 
In fact, biblical scholars and commentators say that really the entire book of Mark hinges on this response that Peter gives to this question. When he says, you are the Messiah, they say that everything in the book of Mark, you could say, is leading up to this moment, and everything is leading away from this moment. When Jesus asks this critical of all questions, and, and, and it finally clicks for Peter, and he says, you are the Messiah. Now, we're going to unpack what that word means, Messiah, but first, I want to consider just how long it took to get to this moment. Because the book of Mark starts, chapter 1, verse 1, with, in the beginning, uh, of the good news. Here, here's the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Mark, a little different from Matthew and, and uh, uh, Matthew and Luke's account, uh, doesn't start with the Christmas story. Mark just jumps straight into Jesus' adult ministry and teachings. And so he starts there with, with the ministry while he's, and showing how he's recruiting these disciples and spending time with them just right off the bat. That's chapter 1, verse 1. And then moving all the way forward, you finally get to the place where these disciples say, okay, Peter, you are the Messiah. Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And between Mark 1.1 1, 1 and 8.29, Bible scholars tell us it's probably about two to two and a half years of time. I mean, think about that. Jesus probably spent about three years' time with the disciples, all in all, which means two-thirds of that time, if not more than two-thirds of the time, was with them just belonging before it finally clicked. You could even argue before they finally became, in a sense, Christians, at least in the understanding as the New Testament talks about receiving Jesus for what he has done specifically for them. So before they ever believed, they, they belonged. And, and what that looked like with the disciples is, first of all, they got to observe for these two, two and a half years with Jesus. All the things that he was doing, they got to observe. His interactions with people, his heart for, for people, his teachings, they got to listen to it, they got to observe, but they also got to participate, they got to be a part of the things Jesus was doing, like actually be a part of it, like for instance, when he multiplied the bread for the, the thousands, they got to be there as he was doing the, performing the miracle, and then they were distributing it to it, but not only were they observers, not only were they participants, they were also ambassadors before this moment. So two chapters before what we're looking at today, Mark 6, you can look at this later and consider the, the timing and context of it all, Jesus sends them out, quote, with authority to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God, meaning they're telling people about the kingdom of God before they kind of, it clicks for them. Uh, Cindy and I both experienced this uh, separately from one another. I uh, remember times in college when we went on short-term missions trips, just these trips with the whole intention of telling people about Jesus. And for whatever reason, on some of these trips, every once in a while, someone would also come who didn't identify as Christian. It's kind of an interesting thought. Why would they join a trip that's all about telling people about Jesus? Well, at least with my friend, it was about, hey, I don't have anything else doing. It sounds interesting. Can I come? Sure, come. So they're there telling people about Jesus. And all, I, I'm not making this up. One of my friends was like out there after a week of telling people about Jesus said, wait a minute. I'm not Christian, but I believe this. And we said, let's talk about that. He put his faith in Jesus. It's like, how glad was I that the leader of that mission trip didn't go, hey, you don't believe in Jesus? Sorry, you can't come. But allowed them to come and be a part of it, tell people about Jesus even before they understood what that meant. Jesus shows us here that with his disciples, his main followers, the 12 guys, said, here, you can belong. Come belong. 
That's why it's so important to us here at Current. You're welcome, we say every week, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Uh, if you don't follow Jesus right now, you don't identify as Christian, we are honored and privileged that you are here. And we want to say, you have a place at the table. It's not that we like tolerate your presence and what. No, we want to roll up our sleeves together with you at, as a community here, looking to serve and care for one another and in, in the community. Uh, for those of you who have friends that you're hoping might be able to participate and be part, we want to be a culture that creates that kind of space where it feels, feels like that. We, we might not, if, if you don't identify as Christian, I'm, I'm probably not going to invite you to preach or teach the Bible for reasons of integrity. But the point is, we all are, try, we all are looking to belong as we seek Jesus wherever we are on a spiritual journey. Uh, whenever I think about this kind of thought, I'm reminded of a good buddy of mine who was a groomsman in my wedding. Uh, he experienced more the behave, believe, uh, be, be, belong scenario and just totally just rebelled against that. As a youth, he just he, he, he had to go to church because his parents weren't asking him if he wanted to or not. He, and so he just started rebelling. And, I, and the way he describes it is like he was just a total punk. I mean, we're talking like serious vandalism, substance abuse, recruiting other people. Like it was just the whole nine yards. Well, when he got into college, he got, got into to Berkeley. He's just like, all right, I'm leaving the church altogether. I'm done with that. But then he met some mutual friends of ours who, who said to him, hey, you should come out to church with us. And his response was like, you got to be kidding me. No way. Been there. I'm not going to do that again. I've, I've had the experience. I'm not going to do that. But my, my friends responded to him, oh, yeah, hey, we get what you're saying. We understand where you're coming from. But, but come out. Trust us. Come out. You, you, these, this, this church is different. You just, just come see. And he was like, all right. Eventually, he, he came out. And that was his experience. He's like, wait a minute. This is totally different than I was what I was expecting. Like, man, these people like genuinely care for one another in greater degrees than I've ever experienced before inside or outside of a church. They care about community. Like, what? He, he's like, all right, I'm, I'll, I'll come back from time to time. Eventually, the church needed a drummer. And so he started to play in, in, the, in the band before he put his faith in Jesus. Just kept coming and, you know, checking things out, listening to messages building community. Well, I'll never forget the day after the sermon was over, there was a worship set. You know how we'll do songs before and after the, the sermon. During the second set of worship, he was playing and the, the song kind of like was getting out of sync. And he's a good drummer, right? So, you know, it was just kind of weird, like what's going on there? And you know, if you're playing the drums and you're out of sync, uh, everybody knows, okay? So it's just like, all right, and I'm just kind of like looking at him. I was up there in the front and, you know, he's kind of like staying in tune or beat, and then he was kind of falling out. And the whole time, he's just like looking down a little off to the side. I'm like, what's, what's this guy thinking about? He's just thinking. And in the middle of the song, he just all of a sudden threw his sticks into the air and walked down to where the sermon was usually given. There's no one there at the time. Went down basically to the altar, got down on both knees and put his faith in Jesus. Middle of the song. Yeah, it was amazing. Why do I share this story? Do I share, this is the formula, guys. If this is you, you don't follow Jesus, but this is, no. We're trying to create a space like this where you can belong. So you're trying to figure this out where you can, put it another way, taste and see who Jesus is, what he's about. Hopefully you can experience it in community. You can hear, we want to get out of the way and point to him as we're all trying to figure it out, figure and grow in him. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. With his disciples, he created a safe place where these disciples weren't second-class citizens until they had their doctrine figured out or they had their beliefs all in order. 
until they understood exactly uh, for them to finally understand who he, who he was. But he let them belong. He wasn't afraid to include, as some of his main followers, guys like my buddy. Remember a couple weeks ago we looked at Levi, the tax collector, guy who would have been known as a crook, a cheat? Jesus went up to him at the tax collector's booth and said, what? Come, follow me. That's, that's another way of saying, come, belong. Be about my things. So first, we need to belong. Second, we see that Jesus doesn't want us to remain there. He really does want to move things forward to believing. Belong, then believe. In verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, let's notice Peter is answering a question that was raised to him. And actually, Jesus is masterfully setting it up for Peter. He's, Peter's not just saying this profession, you are the Messiah, in a vacuum. He's answering a question that Jesus really masterfully built up. And he did that in at least two ways. He, built a, he, he had the, the backdrop in mind and he had a buildup in mind. Uh, first, let's consider the, the backdrop of this key question. Uh, the location, we're told, is he, they were in Caesarea Philippi. That's about 25 miles north of Galilee. Uh, it's off the beaten path. Bible scholars all essentially agree and think it's very unlikely coincidence that Jesus took them way up there, way out of the normal place to raise this question. It was as if Jesus was saying, hey, let's go on a little bit of a retreat, probably to broach this critical of all questions that he wants to raise. So he's, he's getting away, and then he gets away to this place, Caesarea Philippi, which we know at the time our archaeological evidence shows us that it was just scattered with all these pagan temples. Like, no matter where you would have been in that region, there would have been pagan temple after pagan temple all over the place, which probably leads us to think that Jesus, as he was asking this critical of questions, was, was, was also coming at it with, and, and are you going to line me up with these other gods? How, how are you gonna, what are you going to say I am? Who, who do you say I am? So there's the backdrop, but here's the buildup. Jesus doesn't just drop the question. He first says, who do other people say I am? And they say, well, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some others are saying you're one of the prophets. And so probably the buildup here is Jesus saying, hey, are you going to see me as just another good teacher, another person who just points the way? So there's this masterful backdrop and buildup for this critical of questions. But what do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter, for once, <laughs> the, the disciple's known for putting his foot in his mouth, for once knocks it out of the park and says, declares, you, Jesus, are the Messiah. And in Matthew's account, he adds the words, the Son of God. You are, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what does it mean to be Messiah? Uh, the Greek word is Christ. So if you've, you know, we know of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, same word. It literally means the anointed one. Not unanointed one, the anointed one. In the Old Testament scriptures, real quickly, there were three types of people who were anointed. We have priests, uh, prophets, and kings who are all anointed. And so Jesus being not just unanointed one of these, he's the anointed. You know, if you think about it in the, in the sense of priests who perform sacrifices for people, Jesus was not just a, a priest offering a sacrifice for a people, but the priest offering the sacrifice for, for all people. And then he wasn't just an anointed prophet pointing the way to God. Jesus very famously in John 14 said, I am the way to God. Jesus didn't come saying, here's the way to God. He said, I am the way. And then as kings were uh, anointed to rule, of course, Jesus wasn't just any king. He was the king to end all kings. 
and he came to conquer our greatest enemies, sin and death, and establish not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual, eternal kingdom, heavenly kingdom. And that is what clicked for Peter. Notice that he doesn't have his theology all figured out in this moment. We're going to see that (laughs) real quickly. It doesn't take long to understand that Peter didn't have it all worked out, all the intricacies of his theology. But what he did understand, what did click here in this moment, as he said, you are the Messiah, is he understood the centrality of the gospel, that Jesus came to do for him what he could not do for himself. If I could summarize what uh, what Peter essentially said of Jesus when he said, you are the Messiah, he basically was saying to Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. You are my Savior. And this is the question that everything comes down to. Same question for you and me. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Uh, in a video interview, frontman of YouTube, Bono, uh, put it this way. He said, I think it's a defining question, who is Christ? And I don't think you're led off easily by saying a good thinker or a great philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was nuts. And forget rock and roll messianic complexes. I mean Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. Jesus brings things to a head back then and today. The question is the same. Who do you say I am? He forces the matter. We either accept him or reject him on his terms. He won't let us line him up among other prophets, among other gods, among other good moral teachers, nor does he let us relate to him on the basis of what others say about him. But he asks us the same question, poses us the same question. Who do you say I am? I wonder if as you think about that question, any of you guys are like one of my good friends, a buddy who uh, was in a small group of ours early on, and we were just having a nice spiritual conversation. We asked a question that was similar. There's actually two questions. We asked the question, Uh, Who has Jesus been to you, and who is Jesus to you now? And everybody's going around the group answering this question. It was a very thoughtful, engaging conversation. But then my buddy had one of these moments where you could just tell he was thinking and just mulling this over, and he said, you know, I'm realizing that who Jesus has been to me has been tradition, something I have done, go to church, try to be a good person. But I'm realizing now that who Jesus is to me is my Savior, my Lord, someone I, have, I want to have a personal relationship with. And the next person started sharing. And I was sitting there thinking, man, what a monumental moment for my buddy right there. I wonder if some of you are like another friend of mine who recently put his faith in Jesus, who was not raised in the church, was not re- raised religious, and had bad experiences with the church, if anything. But over the course of his life, through, quote, random occurrences of meeting Christians, family members, co-workers who would invite him out to things, who would talk about Jesus. He eventually came out and signed up for one of our Alpha courses, which was really fun, getting to know him in that space, asked a lot of questions, very thoughtful, very engaging, and eventually got to the place like, oh my goodness, I believe. I believe. Jesus asked us the same question today. He asked you the same, but what about you? And then insert your name. Who do you say I am? It's the the defining question that Jesus puts in front of us, and it's something that's so amazing to me about Jesus, because a mind-boggling thought here is the critical question 
The, the critical thought when it comes to putting your faith in Jesus or Christianity is not, hey, here's the doctrine you must believe. Here's the theology. Here's the creed. But rather, what do you make of Jesus? What do you make of the person of Christ, who he is and what he has done for you? Really, at the centrality of the, uh, the, the centrality of the gospel is receiving him and what he's done for you. And that's the same question he has for you and me today. But it doesn't end there. Okay, after Peter's confession, we pick up in verse 31. It says, then he began to teach them. Jesus began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Are we following the order of events here? <laughs> Peter is now rebuking Jesus. How did that come about? Moments before, Peter was declaring him the Messiah, the Son of God, and now he's rebuking him just moments later. How, did, how does that, how do we get there? And by the way, this word rebuking is the same Greek word used for when Jesus rebuked the demons, cast them out. That's an intense word. That's what Peter is doing with Jesus. What's going on here? Well, Peter had a wrong understanding of Jesus and what Jesus was calling him into. More specifically, Peter probably no doubt saw Messiah in that day as the person who would come and deliver them from the yoke of Roman oppression. He would raise up the masses, start a rebellion, fight off the, the Romans and establish a new earthly kingdom. But Jesus is saying, hey, you're selling yourself far too short, infinitely short if that's your goal, that's your aim. Here's what I actually came to do. And as he does that, he gives us a real clear picture of what it means to become. What it means to become and grow and deepen in our walk with Jesus, this life transformational process that God wants to do in and through you when you have put your faith in him. Here's what he says, starting in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He then called the crowd to him along with the disciples. So you can see Jesus is saying, hey, this is a teachable moment here. Everybody lean in. And said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, there's so much we could unpack here. We don't have time to get into it all. But here's what we've been considering. Belong, believe, and now we're going to consider what this tells us about when we become Again, look again at verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus here is flipping how the world thinks on its head. Because what the world says is, hey, go out and get yours. You know, try not to hurt people, at least too much, our culture probably would say, but go get yours. Go do what you need to do. Jesus is saying, though, that's not how... Life works, actually. 
He said, if you gain the whole world even, even doing that, what, what good is it if you forfeit your soul? You know, in the Greek, it's actually a far more nuanced thought that's going on here. That was really fun to kind of uh, see in, in, in my study this week. In, in the Greek, it's it, in, okay, in the English, it says here, uh, whoever loses their life will gain it. And then a verse down, don't, uh, essentially, don't forfeit your soul. So he says the word life and soul. In our English, those are two different words. But in the Greek, it's actually the same word. It's, it's the Greek word, a psyche, uh, which, which is, it's, it's an interesting thought here because there's another Greek word for life, zoe, which is more kind of like life in general or biological life. But here's a nuanced word, psyche, to get across a thought that he really wants to say that can be translated in English as life or, or soul. What does psyche mean? What is Jesus saying here? He was saying this word psyche means where you look for your ultimate purpose, your ultimate identity. Your, your, your ultimate like being of, of who you are. He's saying, don't look for your identity, for your psyche, your soul, in things, anything apart from God, essentially. I'm living for others, because if you do, your soul will be in peril. Uh, for starters, the reason for this is everything in this life will fade. You could live for even wonderful things, but even like, let's say you're living for, to have a great impact in this life. Even people who have the, the greatest impact of this life, generational impact, all that impact will ultimately end up being as a memory, and even that memory will fade. But what's more is we can't find our ultimate purpose in things, things are, that are even good, because when we do, they can only ever let us down. So for instance, if we look for our psyche, our soul, our ultimate purpose, meaning, in things like career, loved ones even, uh, whatever the case might be, health, beauty, if we look for our meaning and purpose ultimately there, if, if we obtain it, it's all, all too easy to become overly inflated because of it. Or if we don't get it or, we, or it's taken from us, it's all too easy to become overcome by despair. I mentioned a few weeks ago that baseball used to be my life. It was my psyche in, in a sense. It was my, where I looked for my, at least partly, for my ultimate meaning. And I, I don't think of myself as an overly arrogant guy when I was playing baseball. It's like when I did well, it's not like I was over there puffing my chest out. But I can tell you that it did go to my head a little bit. And when I wasn't doing well, it really went to me and, and really had me down. But you may say, David, it's just a game. But it wasn't just a game for me. It was my life. It was my, was, or think about religion. Here's an interesting one. It was easy for me as a little guy, especially, to be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm doing well if I'm do, doing good or I'm not doing bad. But if I mess up or don't do what I think I ought to be doing, then I'm, like, taken out by it. Even religion can be something that we look to for our psyche. Jesus, no, no. Or let's take a classic example of looking for ultimate meaning in things like wealth. Uh, you probably are aware of many famous people who have said, man, being wealthy is not what it's all cracked up to be. In fact, actor uh, and comedian uh, Jim Carrey went on record saying, I wish everybody could be wealthy and famous at some point for a very short time so they could really understand that it's not something you actually want. This is built into our name, uh, Current. We say if life is like a flowing river... Uh, then it's all too easy in the Silicon Valley to find ultimate meaning, purpose, value, psyche in things like making it big, resume stats, the next IPO. But Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures teach, from within them will flow rivers of living water. Then when you put your faith in me, he said, you will find life both now and forevermore. 
Uh, that's the call, to find our psyche, to find our soul, our life ultimately in him in a place that will never be taken away, always secure. And Jesus was saying in this moment, this is how life truly works. By giving your life up for others. It, that's how it works. And you know what? It might sound paradoxical, but I believe we all think it to be true. Wait, what do you mean? I really do think that life experience shows us when we give up our life for the sake of others, we find that we do find life. Have you ever like stood up for somebody to protect them, to shield them, and found that just at the soul level, it just was so meaningful and moving? Have you ever just extended you know, a small act of kindness or encouragement, thinking about somebody above yourself and just wondering at why you're so satisfied by that? Uh, is it not satisfying just to come alongside somebody and just see where they're at and kind of meet them in that space? This is because Jesus made us this way, to be self-giving people. And you know what? He gives us the power to do this because the reality is here, if you really commit to becoming these things, it'll be hard, or at least it can be hard in a sense, because people won't always appreciate it when you give your life, to give them life. They won't always appreciate it. They won't always reciprocate it. Or on the flip side of that coin, you won't always do it all that well. But God gives us the power to actually do this when it's hard. How? Because this is what he first did for us. This is the gospel. The whole gospel is we ought to serve God. He made us, he loves us, he cares for us, but if anything, we don't love him, we don't serve him. And what did he do in response to that? Force us to serve and love him? No. Sent his son, verse 31, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and ultimately to rise again. In other words, he gave up his psyche, his life, his soul in order to give us life. And because he's done that and it's secure once and for all in what he has done and who he is, it can never be shaken or removed from us. So we can commit to loving and caring for others, even when they don't reciprocate or appreciate, because that's not what it's about. It's about becoming the people that God's called us to, which is a journey that will last, a progression that will last for all eternity, which means even as Jesus rose again on that third day, even death only serves to make you greater when you've put your faith in him. Nothing can shake you. Nothing can move you because your soul is complete. Your life is fully in him. And this current family is what he invites you and me to become, to give our lives for the sake of others, to, for the sake of him and his, and his gospel, his, his good news. Really following in his footsteps as he served and cared for us, it's orienting our lives increasingly around him and his ways. It's as a community, humbly, as we're all on this journey together, helping one another do this, live towards him and his ways. And so on this fifth birthday of ours, we remind ourselves that this is what it's all about. We celebrate what he's been doing. It's been an incredible ride so far, and we can't wait to see what the next five years hold. It's a wonderful call that we get to live our lives for others, and we get to do it in community, we get to help each other in that. We get to belong, believe, become. And uh, you're probably not going to see this in the way back, but when we put this together, we didn't do this with this intention, but the team noticed that the word love is actually found in this sequence. And that was so cool, not only just kind of like visually, but the fact that it basically conveys what this all is about. It's about God's love for us and the love that he invites us into as we receive his life and offer it to those around us as we belong, believe, become. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for sending your son to suffer for us, to be rejected, uh, to die on the cross and, and, and to rise again, that we can have life in you. Uh, Father, would you draw each of us uh, here today closer to you, wherever we are on our, our spiritual journey? Uh, would you help us be a community of one that's of belong, believe, become, helping people taste and see who you are, even as we need that ourselves, and believing and following after you and things that matter to you, your, your ways? And would you help us become increasingly like Jesus? who came to offer his life, that we would have life. We confess that we, we don't always do this all that well, but we're so grateful that uh, you give us the power to do this increasingly through your example and through the power of your spirit. Father, thank you so much for these past five years. You've blown me away by your goodness. All the people who've put their faith in you, all the people who've come back to you. Father, would the next five years be even more impactful for the sake of your gospel kingdom, not for our sake, but for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of your kingdom moving forward in this place. We love you. We thank you so much that you called us to do this all together, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.